I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's a small blue flame, a light that signals so many creature comforts. Cooking hearty meals on the gas stove, of course. Hot showers and baths. And cozy, warm homes when it's just so cold outside. But every time the flame burns, it sends something else out into the world. Methane, emissions considered among the worst contributors to climate change. Though you might know it by another name, natural gas. It comes from oil and gas production, from agriculture and garbage dumps. And it's also coming from many homes. Places like Vancouver and New York are working to change that, effectively banning natural gas in all new buildings. No surprise, oil and gas companies aren't too happy about it. They say natural gas is part of the solution in order to end the use of even dirtier coal. And it's a less pricey fuel for those who can't afford other sources. But there are costs, and then there are costs to the planet. This week, a tale of two small communities going further than their big city counterparts as they turn off the gas and keep the fight against climate change on the front burner. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Now, you might think that my puns about cooking, I'm sorry, are simply the work of my playful producers. Sure, let's blame them. But many people love the convenience and reliability of a gas stove. Restaurants rely on them to ensure those delectable meals are prepared properly and served piping hot. And before we hear about the solutions in small towns, a quick pit stop in one of the biggest cities out there, New York. A local organization wants everyday cooks and professional chefs to see their stoves for what they really are. So that phrase, hey, now we're cooking with gas, that comes from the 30s. That is a marketing slogan. And that is Jean Bergman. She's the director of programs for We Act for Environmental Justice. It's a nonprofit in Harlem. She says natural gas sold itself in the 30s as a clean, modern form of energy. And the core of the PR effort was stoves. It was an effective way for the industry to sell gas because it cooks very fast. It's appealing. You can see it, the flame. And they did a tremendous job using the home cook as the target for their initiative. And once you move gas into the system, then you can just keep expanding and expanding the gas infrastructure and gas use. I want to reverse that trajectory. Bergman says just as companies open the door to gas by selling it to home cooks, she wants to open the door to kick it out. Step one is a pilot project that would, in effect, put out the pilot light, helping low-income families in New York and Buffalo install heat pumps, measure air quality and energy use, and swap out gas stoves for induction ones. 
one of the things that's so exciting about this research project that we're doing is how fantastic this new technology is. So I have a 15-year-old son who eats easily four or more bowls of pasta and ramen a day. And we can boil his two cups of ramen water in 35 seconds. So that's just insane. So much faster than gas. And the surface remains cool. Chef Sia Pickett is a fan of induction cooktops too. It's safer, it's cleaner, and it does reduce that residual heat that you get from a gas stove. You know, a lot of times you'll see chefs and they'll have a bandana and stuff like that. That's to catch the sweat because it's just so hot and so heated in the kitchen because of the gas. Based in Brooklyn, Pickett shows the families in Gene Bergman's pilot project how to use their new stoves. This particular community is more Latinx, and so rice is an important staple in their diet. So I show them how to, you know, make the rice, which we did um, some chicken with that, like our roast con pollo type of dish. And I showed them that they could still make their coffee using their traditional coffee pot. We've made some Chinese five spice wings. And then we also did some homemade French fries. During the holidays, there's a roasted pork dish that they do where they keep the skin on the outside for it to get really kind of crunchy, almost like a, a crackling. And so they wanted to know, well, they still do this oven, still do this. And I showed them that it would. It was a good time. We had fun with it. So I hope they get some ways to cook some of their traditional recipes in a healthier, more sustainable way. As much as cooking can cut to the heart of how people feel about natural gas, the majority of building methane emissions actually comes from heating. And while Vancouver and New York City say new buildings won't be able to use natural gas for heating, Ithaca, New York is working to get all of its buildings, new and old, disconnected from fossil fuels. Luis Aguirre Torres is the Director of Sustainability for Ithaca in upstate New York. He spent 12 years helping Latin American countries develop climate change legislation and renewable energy projects. Now he's working to help Ithaca, population 30,000, become a net zero community by 2030. Luis, hello. Hello. You were hired by the city of Ithaca less than a year ago. I'm wondering what went through your mind when you first heard the pledge to be carbon neutral by 2030. Well, I'm still wondering what went through my mind that I took this job when they told me that. Um, <laughs> no, that I thought it was a very bold plan. I thought that the the city was, you know, making a statement going beyond uh, what the government, uh, the state government, and the federal government uh, were trying to do. And I thought it was a, a very interesting challenge. I've heard that you thought at first it was crazy or even ridiculous <laughs> before you started looking into it. Uh, that is true. Uh, when when I saw what the city was trying to do, and I remember saying, uh, well, it's crazy. Nobody can do that. 
but then I, I, I looked at it closely and, and I realized that it was actually feasible, just just very difficult. It requires, you know, a lot of commitment, a lot of political support and a lot of money to make it happen. Okay. In November, Ithaca became the first jurisdiction in the United States to commit to electrify all of its buildings, and that's 6,000 in Ithaca. Why focus on buildings? Well, in our city, uh, which is, you know, very close to to the rest of the country, we have about, uh, you know, 400,000 metric tons of CO2. That's, you know, like 100,000 cars going at the same time. The the distribution of carbon emissions is about 40% uh, coming from buildings and mostly derived from uh, energy use. Uh, 40% comes from transportation, about 15% comes from our electric grid, and then 5% from other sources. So buildings, you know, represent uh, an important challenge, but at the same time, if you think about it, uh, if we were to tackle buildings and we were to include solar and EV charging infrastructure, we would be going beyond that 40% uh, from buildings. So the idea was to make a dent as soon as possible, and we chose buildings for that reason. And it's also, you had in your mind tackling methane emissions? Yes. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, we talk about carbon emissions because it's easier, but we need to make that distinction because methane is a much more powerful uh, greenhouse gas and we need to tackle that. So when we when we think about natural gas, we really are talking about methane. And, and so it is important to reduce carbon emissions from buildings. And with that, we mean methane uh, combustion. Okay, so so when we're when when you're doing this and you're talking about new buildings, it seems pretty obvious that that you could do that as you're building it. But can you give us a excuse the word concrete example of how a, a specific building would be updated in order to take it off the natural gas supply? We developed a tool that allows us to do the you know the energy profile for every single building in the city. And with that, I can tell you you know based on the age of the building, the materials and and the you know the activity inside the building, I can tell you more or less what the energy savings would be if we were to replace a natural gas furnace with a heat pump. Uh, based on that, we go and, and then we we ask the building owner if uh, he or she would agree to an energy assessment. If we do that and we determine that through a replacement of windows perhaps and by replacing all the thermal loads, everything that we use to produce heat inside a building, if we were to replace it with electric alternatives, uh, would, we would have savings. Then it's about identifying the best financial solution. And this is something that we've looked at on the program before in a different context, and that, that is getting people to use something like a heat pump with the promise of maybe an upfront cost or an upfront loan that they will pay back by saving on their energy. But what, what the city is talking about doing, it actually sounds really expensive. So how does the city pay for it? Well, it is very expensive. I mean, if you think about it, the city of Itaca has about 40% of the building stock was built before 1920. So when you talk about electrifying, you're talking about replacing the entire, you know, electric wiring in the building. So yeah, it could be as expensive as $50,000 for uh, the attached single family home, or it could be as, as cheap as $5,000. It all depends on the state of the building. And the city never thought about paying for it, but there was the need to upfront the costs to convince people to participate in the program. So we went to private sources. We convinced private investors to participate and we managed to get commitments for $105 million. And that was enough to uh, retrofit and electrify at least 1,600 buildings. And uh, 
And I believe that we are going to be able to repay the $105 million through the program, but we're also making use of state and federal incentives that will allow us to you know, reduce the pressure to generate a return for our investors, basically by using those incentives and rebates. Right. I was going to ask you, what is in it for the investors? Well, they, they do have a return on their investment, but the way this is structured is they are not investing in the city. They are actually investing in a company to take on this market. So if you think about it, you know, this is ideal because you have a company, let's say you have a startup technology company focused on retrofitting and electrification, and then a city opens its entire market for you. This is the dream of any, you know, company owner, but this is even the dream for uh, an investor in that company. So what we're actually doing is, you know, creating a market for a company to be successful and therefore uh, the success to, you know, reach the investors behind these companies. The, the, the decarbonization plans, they're part of Ithaca's Green New Deal, and it also has a focus on justice and equity. So I'm wondering how low-income residents benefit from it. Well, the, the city has a program uh, called Justice 50, and the idea is that 50% of the benefits are redirected to low-income communities or climate justice communities. And we are creating a way of, of making these uh, for some uh, through the use of incentives and philanthropic contributions to make this a 0% uh, interest uh, lending program, guaranteeing that the payments will not be more than 80% of the actual savings uh, every time. So for low-income people, what we offer is simply a reduction in the utility bill, and that's it. They don't even see that you know they, they are actually repaying a loan. Mm-hmm. You know, some people have a strong attachment to natural gas, whether it's for cooking or fearing that that other forms of energy just can't be reliable during cold spells. How are you planning to get everybody on board? Well, a lot of it is it's, it's like the debate about climate change. You know, there is a lot of misinformation. There is a lot of uh, science behind. There is a lot that needs to be clarified and needs to be communicated properly. So we're making a big effort on education. We we understand people have the right to use uh, whatever fuel source they want, but what they don't have is the right to disproportionately, uh, you know, harm others through uh, pollution. So, for example, if we were to, you know, electrify 30% of the city, then the remaining 70% would be already disproportionately uh, polluting the rest. So even if all of this goes as planned, Ithaca's grid still isn't all renewable, is it? No, that is true. And and what we are going for is carbon-free electricity. And so it's not going to be all renewable. Some of it is going to be nuclear and some of it is going to be hydropower. But right now in the city of Itaca, because of where we are located in the grid, we get about 80% of our electricity from carbon-free sources. So we are also deploying, uh, you know, solar, we are deploying uh, energy storage systems and, and EV charging infrastructure at the same time, you know, trying to take advantage of the economic benefits of co-deploying certain technologies. And, and by doing that, we reduce more and more the dependency that we have on, on the utility company. And the intention is to eventually have a community choice aggregation program that combined with, uh, you know, the use of renewable energy, we will be able to claim that we have 100% 24-7 carbon-free electricity. Now, I know you've only been living in Ithaca for a year, but I'm wondering if you can explain to me why Ithaca is leading the charge on this. Has climate change really affected the residents there? 
I think people are educated and, and there is uh, a large number of nonprofit organizations entirely devoted to educating people on the effects of climate change. And, and you can sense that. When I came, I didn't have to explain things from the beginning. People knew what a heat pump was. So people were informed in ways that I had not seen in other places. And, and the other element is the anti-fracking movement that eventually managed to ban natural gas uh, in, in New York State was uh, initiated in Ithaca. So people take a lot of pride in that. That's one of the battles that the community won over the giant utility companies. So they see that as a mission now, ever since the fracking fight. I'm wondering, now that you're you're in the midst of this, how uh, much you think what Ithaca is doing can be replicated in other cities? Well, I believe everything that we're doing can be replicated. One of the, the asks, you know, when I, when I was hired, the mayor asked me to make sure that this would be a modular solution, that this is something that could be packaged and repackaged and retried if, if some elements could fail. And I thought that was, a, that was a brilliant idea because I think a lot of what we have done, you know, can be divided into parts. I mean, you can, uh, if, if you think about the Itaca model, you can implement just parts of it or you can implement the whole thing. And it doesn't matter what you do, it will take you closer to reducing carbon emissions. So the idea is, is to create a blueprint for decarbonization for rural America. And I believe we're actually very close to doing that. Wow, that means there's going to be lots more work for you in the future. Uh, we, we know local government because, you know, local government, that, that's a hard place to work. Uh, and it, it can sometimes be thankless. I'm wondering what motivates you to, to be doing this work in Ithaca. I am very grateful to live in the United States. I, you know, I'm not talking about Mexico being a country where, where people have no rights, but the reality is that people have other worries. And over there, it was very difficult to convince people to, to focus on climate change when other things, like particularly now, for example, access to vaccines. Uh, so I can see this as an opportunity. And, you know, the best way I can answer this question is, I was invited to a rally the other day where, you know, they, they were asking me to offer a few words to people regarding uh, Proposition 2, which was to amend New York State Constitution to guarantee the right to clean water and clean air to all its citizens. And halfway through the speech, I, I started thinking, there is no way I could have been doing this in any other country. You know, this is the place where change can begin. And I believe that if I do this, if I convince my community and the community does a good job, then the state will follow, then the country will follow, and that's when other countries can follow. I think that uh, we will be watching Ithaca, as will a lot of people in the months and years to come. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Uh, 
About a four-hour drive north of Ithaca, across the border, across the shores of Lake Ontario, is the community of Halton Hills. Stacy Porter lives there and watches what's happening all around her. I live with my husband Keith in uh, Halton Hills and I'm always concerned about our world and our earth. Like when you read the news, it's so upsetting what's happening around the world. I mean, we have friends in, in Kelowna and Vancouver and it's just breaking our hearts, even on the East Coast, all the things that are happening there. So we feel a bit insulated here being around the Great Lakes, but it just feels like it's kind of literally it's closing in on us. My biggest fear is wind and uh, and the wind has changed drastically. And so we've had a tree come through our roof and that was awful. And uh, so when it's windy out, we just know that trees are are going to break. It's to me, it's so scary because it's so unpredictable. Clearly, Porter is worried about climate change and she wants to do her part, but... We don't even know, you know, how to start. There is some support for people like Porter. Her community of Halton Hills is rolling out a new pilot project to retrofit homes like hers. So I'm excited because I love improving processes. So I thought if if I'm a part of it, I will take it very, very serious. And getting an audit in my house is super exciting, first of all to understand maybe what we do need to do. And if we don't need to do anything, then I will be absolutely thrilled. I know we do have to, though. We live rural, we're oil heat. But I know there's all kinds of ways to improve. But in the long run, if we're helping our community and helping our region and helping our province and the world, like it's a no-brainer to me. And so if, if this pilot project is ironing out those kinks that are involved in the process, because everybody's busy, they don't want to you know, waste time. Michael Dean is charged with ironing out the kinks of the program along with other efforts to make the town net zero by 2030, and that is the same timeline as Ithaca, well before the 2050 goal set out by most other places in Canada. Michael is the senior climate change and energy planner for the town of Halton Hills. We reached him after he'd been dealing with some heavy weather. Hi. How much snow have you got there? Uh, quite a bit. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that my electric uh, snow blower that I bought in the summer handled it fairly well, although I had to recharge the batteries a couple times. <laughs> oh, I love it. electric snow blowers. Are, th- are those very popular yet? Not from the looks of things. Oh. I know there's somebody up the block from me who has one. They must be less noisy, I would think. They are much less noisy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be worth it alone to the neighbors, I would <laughs> I mean, it's great. I mean, yeah, it means I can go out any time of night. (laughs) Well, there, that's interesting in and of itself. Michael says Halton Hills has seen the same kinds of climate impacts as other communities around the greater Toronto area. You know, we're starting to see warmer temperatures, increased precipitation, more extreme storm events, all that kind of stuff. And we're expecting those things to increase as the impacts of climate change uh, continue to be felt. How far does then does retrofitting homes get you toward that 2030 goal of net zero? It has a potential to get us quite far on that pathway. Our main sources of greenhouse gas emissions, the biggest one is is transportation. So that's, you know, personal vehicles and commercial vehicles. But then the second biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions are existing residential buildings. We are lucky to have a very low carbon intensity 
in our electricity grid. Uh, so the majority of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with homes is a result of, of natural gas. And we just heard Stacey Porter say she cannot wait to sign up for the pilot project. Can you tell me how the program will work? The idea is to use mechanism that we have available to us called the local improvement charge. And basically what that does is it allows us to provide loans to homeowners at low interest rates. In this case, for the pilot, we're targeting zero interest loans. Those loans would then be attached to the property rather than to the property owner. They are earmarked for use for energy efficiency upgrades, installation of renewable energy systems, things like that. And so the idea here is that by providing these loans, we can help people overcome the sometimes high upfront costs of doing these types of improvements for their homes. What are you talking about? Solar panels, heat pumps, triple glazed windows? Yeah, yeah. So the all of those things potentially could be covered. So the program is looking at providing funding for three major areas. So those three areas are envelope upgrades. So that's we're really talking about things like windows, insulation, and air ceilings. And then um, mechanical systems. So that would be anything from, you know, high efficiency furnaces to heat pumps. And then renewable energy is also covered under this program. So potentially solar panels could be part of that. What are the biggest barriers to getting off of natural gas, which we know is primarily methane? One major barrier is just essentially knowledge. These are complex systems. People don't necessarily know in great detail how these heating systems work in their own home. I mean, they have some sense of it, but to be able to understand what you can do, how much it's going to cost you, how to get these things done, even where to look for contractors who can carry out this type of work. So in addition to providing these loans, we're also interested in providing resources and and help to homeowners to kind of guide them through this process. Um, obviously, the upfront capital costs associated with these things is a is a significant barrier. You know, in a lot of cases, they're going to reduce how much it costs to operate your home, how much how much you're going to pay for energy on a month to month basis. But you still need to get the capital together in order to be able to make that investment. And so, you know, the purpose of this loan is to help people do that. And then, you know, another barrier is the availability of folks who are knowledgeable in installing these types of systems who are ready to put these things in place. And this is an opportunity for us to develop this kind of industry locally and, and in this region. Natural gas is cheap, but but what about the cost to homeowners for heating with electricity in the long term? Do you hear concerns from residents about how to pay for that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that we're we're really aware of. The economics are are changing to some extent because of the carbon price, and I think people haven't quite wrapped their head around like what this means in terms of the long-term implications for natural gas heating and it achieving not parity with electric heating, of course, but making it a little bit more cost effective. But really what you need to be doing is looking at efficiency as kind of the primary objective. So we want, you know, you want to reduce the amount of energy your home needs in order to heat itself. And then when you do that, then switching over to electricity can be a economically viable option, right? We're not going to ask anybody to 
really blow up their electricity or their heating bills um, in order to do this type of stuff. We know that as much as people are concerned about climate change and want to help out, they have bills to pay and, and, you know, we can't ask them to do unreasonable things. We've heard these climate commitments from, from Halton Hills, of course, other towns, federal government, and yet <laughs> Ontario provincially is planning to expand natural gas in the province. Um, we reached out to the gas company Enbridge. It sent us a statement that says, and this is a quote, Calls to ban natural gas infrastructure are misguided. Long-term energy demand forecasts and climate scenarios see an important role for oil and gas for many years to come. Uh, I'm wondering what you say to that. Well, I mean, our current plan envisions some natural gas remaining in Halton Hills. We were hopeful that some of the initiatives that folks like Enbridge are undertaking to develop sources of renewable natural gas can help reduce the emissions associated with that. But our local commitment is to net zero by 2030 and and reducing fossil fuel consumption to as close to zero as possible is a requirement of that commitment. So that's what we're aiming to achieve. So so who's who's putting a foot wrong here? Is it Halton Hills or the province? <laughs> you know, I mean We know that the things that we're trying to do with our climate change plan are extremely ambitious and involve us doing things that, you know, really haven't been done by anybody, at least in in Canada, and requires a real real transformation of the kind of energy systems that currently operate in our municipalities. So that is a level of ambition that you know, we think it's necessary to meet the scale of the challenge. And we're hopeful that we're going to be successful in doing this. And if we are successful, then the obvious implication is that natural gas consumption is going to be significantly reduced, at least in in Halton Hills. Uh, Michael Dean, we will, I think, keep paying attention to what is going on in the community and perhaps check back with you again. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, you might have heard Michael Dean mention that Enbridge is trying to develop something called Renewable Natural Gas, or RNG, and it is. So is Fortis in British Columbia. In fact, the Canadian Gas Association says RNG production in Canada is growing. But just a note here, RNG is actually a bit of a rebrand of what we used to call biogas. It's a refined version, and the term is gaining popularity in the industry as it faces the shift away from fossil fuels. But as for exactly what renewable natural gas is, and if it's really as climate-friendly as the industry claims, well, you'll have to stay tuned, because that episode is yet to come. This week's show was put together by associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders. The What on Earth team includes producer Molly Siegel, our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.